Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. Thanks. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode for you that was a listener's request, which is to talk about workers' compensation. We've invited two surgeons that have a great deal of experience and have done research in this area. First, we have Dr. Nick Verma, who's a shoulder and sports surgeon at, the, at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Verma, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me. Rachel, how are you? All good. Good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. In addition, we have Dr. David Ring, who is an upper extremity surgeon at the University of Texas in Austin. Dr. Ring, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Dr. Verma, let's start with you. Um, Pete and I both had the opportunity to work with you as residents and um, in my year as fellow, and um, we know you have a lot of experience caring for patients with work-related injuries. Can you tell us what has been or what have been your most successful strategies in managing what I think we all recognize can be a challenging patient population? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm not sure what the commentary says when you get invited to speak at a workers' compensation uh, panel discussion, but uh, I'll take it for what it is. Um, you know, it's 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 all around a challenging uh, field. I think there's a number of competing interests. I think the biggest thing that has served me well is that um, it's it's a patient population that sometimes doesn't get access to the best quality care. And so I think if you can um, stay objective, if you follow the medicine, if you do what's right, if you take good care of patients, uh, the rest just falls into place. And so I think that there's a lot of areas where you can get sidetracked in terms of uh, decision-making or, or having trouble with authorizations and those types of things. But at the end of the day, you're the physician, the injured worker is your patient. And if you treat them in large part the same way that you would do other patients from a decision-making standpoint uh, and a treatment methodology standpoint, I think you keep yourself out of trouble. I wanted to ask you a follow-up about that because I, I think that's great advice. But I've definitely had other physicians say, oh, you should treat workers' compensation patients differently, you know, that you should, for instance, a lot of people will say, oh, all of my workers' compensation cases, I do the biceps when I do the cuff because I don't want to leave any reason for there to be residual pain. Tell us your thoughts on that. Do you treat the workers' compensation patients any differently, or do you think you use the exact same strategies and algorithms you use for your standard patients? So it's a great question, Pete, and I think no matter what distribution of patients we're talking about, there are some nuances in the way we treat patients differently. And I would draw the analogy for you for the way we take care of high-level athletes, right? There's a different, I don't want to say algorithm, but we do things slightly different in terms of how quickly do we order an MRI scan? Um, how do we consider uh, where they are in season in terms of return to play decisions? How do we take into account contract negotiations or contract years? So those types of things invariably play a role, and it's no different in the workers' compensation patient. I think a couple of things that I've learned um, in taking care of these patients over time is, number one, get as much objective data as you can uh, in order to help you to make your decision. So, for example, in a work comp patient, I may be much quicker to order an MRI scan than in a patient that... Um, that uh, is otherwise coming to treat me outside of a work-related injury. I want the objective data. I want to know what the, the, the disease process is, and I want to lay out a treatment plan with all of the uh, decision-making factors uh, involved to say, if A, then B, and if B, then C, meaning 
we're going to try this conservative option. We're going to give it six weeks. We're going to do therapy. If that doesn't work, then we're going to do surgery. This is the surgery. This is the expected outcome. And so I think that if you can do that to help set expectations right off the bat, I think it, it, it makes you a better clinician. I think it puts the patient at ease with regard to how their treatment may go. And it does satisfy the needs of the third parties involved in terms of what are the expectations for this patient in terms of when are they going to be back at work, what might the treatment entail, and what does the long-term sequelae look like. Um, in regards to, I think, the, the, the deeper question that you're asking is treatment decisions, I do think that I'm a little bit more aggressive about taking away all of the pain generators, as I like to call it, in the shoulder. So, for example, if a patient has any symptoms in the AC joint, I'm going to be much more aggressive about resecting the AC joint because the last thing you want to do is to leave some potential uh, secondary treatment option on the table so that if you're doing a rotator cuff and there was some biceps pathology and the patient has anterior shoulder pain later, then that just opens up the second opinion evaluation, the possibility of a second surgery, the possibility of going back and doing the biceps. So I think if I can take that out of the equation, it just helps for me to objectively uh, limit any potential future uh, treatment decisions that I may need to make or any potential second opinion or alternative options that may be offered. And I can do so, at, I think, at uh, very little risk to the patient and still get a good outcome for them. So you obviously don't want to do things that are unindicated. You don't want to do things that are putting the patients at risk. But I do think you hedge your bets on the side of taking away any of the pathology and doing as, quote unquote, complete an operation as you can if you're dealing with a surgical situation. And certainly by doing so, you could save the patient a necessary operation. I think the bigger question is whether or not the workers' compensation status alters the patient's outcome. Dr. Ring, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, if you, if you don't mind, I, it feels a little uncomfortable to start in the middle of, you know, there's some basic principles that I'm learning a little bit better about work claims. So brief review, and then maybe that'll give context for my answer. Um, you know, there was a time when if a worker was injured, they, in order to get medical coverage and benefits and compensation for the injury, let's just make it extreme and say a factory machine amputated their arm, um, they would have to sue the employer. And the employer had a lot of ways to block that, right? They had the money and the power and, um, it was a it was a not a good system, and it was a system that there wasn't particularly fair. So, starting in in Prussia and then in the United States, more along these lines, they set up this no fault system, where the each state government set up a workers' compensation system, and the employers uh, agreed to pay for the for the uh, health care of the injured worker, and the worker agreed not to sue, and. There, you know, there's, that's the simplest way to look at it. If if you think about what's meant to be covered under a work claim, it's that amputation, that laceration, uh, let's say clavicle fracture, proximal hemorrhage fracture, uh, rotator acute rotator cuff rupture. Um, it, but what's happened is partly by incomplete science and partly by uh, false evidence. I mean, we, we kind of, we, we kind of did to ourselves. Think about how we call every defect in the rotator cuff, a rotator cuff tear. I mean, these are these things that we uh, have, we are sort of complicit in this. And so 
and state by state, this there there's what happens with policy rather than science. Science leaves room for discussion, leaves room for probabilistic thinking. It could be eighty percent work related or twenty percent work related, um, but policy is all or none. It either is or it isn't, and uh, it's either a yes or it's a no. And so those the policies come from either written laws or legal precedents. And from those, we have things like workers' comp uh, covers carpal tunnel syndrome, workers' comp covers your rotator cuff pathology, even when an MRI of your other shoulder would show exactly the same pathology and it's clearly not traumatic. So in that circumstance, you're basically, you're dealing with a certain amount of pathophysiology and the outcomes evidence shows that uh, keep in mind what an outcome measure is. It's just a It's just a way of quantifying symptom intensity and magnitude of capability or activity and tolerance. And the, the thing that determines those numbers is not how large your defect is in your rotator cuff or how much fat atrophy you have, a fat, a fatty infiltration or atrophy you have. It's how secure you are in your life roles and how much psychological distress you have and how much misconceptions you have about your symptoms or how much you are misinterpreting your symptoms. And the evidence for that is growing and growing. So if I give you a specific example, it will now, I'll now finally answer your question. So I saw a guy today. If I tell you he's a 54-year-old machine operator, I assume immediately will come to mind that is a difficult job for a 54-year-old. He's not going to be able to do that forever. And sure enough, he's hitting that wall. It did happen to coincide with an injury, which could have been severe, but didn't cause any severe uh, fractures, dislocations, or lacerations. He has neck arthritis, rotator cuff pathology without a defect, labral pathology that is clearly early arthritis, and mild carpal tunnel syndrome, none of which are work injuries, all of which were accepted under the workers' comp claim. And so they are now considered part of the workers' comp claim. But in reality, these are his normal everyday pathologies that come with age. And he's going through very difficult life transitions and trying to figure out how he's going to make a living and uh, give up his uh, identity as a machine operator. So you are dealing with despair, uh, uh, fear, worry, and loss of role. First and foremost, you're not dealing with rotator cuff pathology, neck arthritis, or carpal tunnel syndrome. And I, I think it also should be stated, given the fact that, you know, we're a national organization as the American Shoulder Elbow Society, that, that there's a lot of variability also in, in the state-by-state -state approach to this. And, you know, and we can probably talk about the approach uh, in his state. I can tell you in Illinois, we are what's called a non-apportionment state, which means um, uh, a lot of what David is saying is, is very applicable. Um, all that the standard here is that if any portion of the condition is work-related, the entire condition gets covered as a work-related injury, which means that you could have the worst pre-existing osteoarthritis, you could have minimal symptoms, you can have a fairly minor injury that then results in the manifestation of symptoms. And given that that work injury was in some way a contributing factor to the onset of the symptoms, even if it's 0 0.0001%, in our state, at least, it gets covered as, as the entire injury was, or, or condition, let's call it, because it may not even be an injury, is work-related. And that's contrast to other states where 
physicians actually have to make a decision to say, I think this condition is 10% work-related or 90% work-related. So some of this comes down to state specifics, but I think the bigger um, issue that, that um, was being discussed is the fact that it's not necessarily only the fact that a patient got injured at work that's contributing to this, it's all the other factors that go into it, meaning their happiness at home, their happiness with their job, their age, how it affects their social status, how it affects their relationship with their family members. And I think one of the best examples that I learned early on is in my work as a shoulder surgeon, but also as a sports surgeon, we take care of ACL injuries. And when you see ACL-related work injuries, they tend to be younger, healthier patients. They're often doing things like at the company picnic and they tear their ACL. And those patients far and away have very similar outcomes to our non-work-related patients. And that's because they have a desire to get better so that they can return to things they like to do outside of work as much as they have a desire to get better so they can return to things uh, that they need to do inside of work. So I think that that's a great example of how there are so many factors that go into it that are not just, I got hurt at work, but uh, other psychosomatic factors that, as David said, we're learning a lot about now that contribute to some of the deficiencies and outcomes that we see in the work-related patients. I'm, I'm so glad that we're getting into this early because um, I think that's such an important aspect of the workers' compensation visit. One of the things that I think you brought up, David, that I think is super important is, that, is the, the, the despair of the patient who's worried they're not going to be able to return to their job that's been their identity for so long. That can be really hard at a 15-minute clinic slot. Tell us how, what strategies do you have to dig into that? When you see that patient, how do you how do you get to that and separate that out from the patient coming with an MRI that may say rotator cuff tear who says I need to have surgery because there's something torn in my shoulder? Yeah, that's a this is a frequent topic of conversation in my circles. the The first thing I think to realize is we're all specialists, and uh, I, I think most of the people on this call and a lot of people in the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons are are like quaternary care specialists, basically the the referral to the, the, the surgeons, the specialists refer to you. Um, so you, you, what happens is, and this is getting worse and worse, by the way, my, I just, my occupational medicine and workers comp uh, administrative colleagues tell me this is getting worse and worse, but basically a person uh, has a new symptom at work, goes to the occupational medicine uh, clinic and just basically gets bounced around and not great care. And, um, even misinformation and, and mishandling and gets the wrong idea about things and f- feels uh, a lot of times there's, this is an unjust uh, system. You know, people get, they feel, they feel, feel poorly treated. Often they are poorly treated. And, and so the person I saw today, back to my example was nine months into this and I'm the second specialist seeing him. And so that creates a 50-minute office visit. And and that office visit goes, my current best effort at this is listen to the 10-minute recounting of the injustices and and let them tell you every injustice and acknowledge every single one of them because you got to build a relationship. Otherwise, there's going to be no trust. And then there's there's a whole bunch of other things that go into it. But it's, it's... you're basically going to have to undo a lot of misconceptions and misinformation. And the only way you're going to do that is to have a good relationship. And you probably can't do it in one visit. Now, having said that, if this person came directly to me, if they came from the work site with their new shoulder pain, 
And I was able to, to make a relationship with them uh, would be a lot easier because there'd be a lot less injustice and background and worry and fear and um, not trusting doctors and having hopelessness and feeling like it's taking too long. And somebody told you you have a tear and that it has to be fixed and even offered you getting it fixed. None of that has happened. And so you can say, oh, good. Look at that. It's not broken. It's not ruptured. You got you got through that without any major damage. There's some sort of sprain or strain. You're also 54 and you've got a little underlying rotator cuff tendinopathy. We'll get your sprain better. Rotator cuff tendinopathy will be what it will be. We'll close your work claim, get you back to work, MMI, and move to your commercial insurance. And that's what we need is we need to get in sooner. We need to have thoughtful specialists get in there sooner. They're, they're scared of that because they think we're just going to do procedures and run up a bill. But I, I think thoughtful specialists getting involved sooner will make nice, short conversations build trust, get the facts out there and get people healthy. Dr. Ring, thank you. Definitely good perspective, um, especially for our younger listeners, but I think even for our experienced, you know, practitioners who, um, who treat these patients, great perspective. And I love how you phrased it, listening to the injustices and all of the injustices. It's sometimes that does take a while um, and what, what really is necessary to set the stage. Dr. Verma, let's ask you, you know, one of the more challenging aspects of a worker's compensation case can be your role as the surgeon in defining work restrictions, especially if the patient already has in their mind what they think they can or cannot do. This gets challenging when the patient then states that their workplace may not honor the restrictions that you are suggesting or that they think they can do. How have you managed that? I mean, we've all we've all had these patients and, and they say one thing and either you agree or you're thinking something else, but then they say their work can't accommodate that, they don't have light duty or whatever it might be. How do you how do you manage that? That's a great question, Rachel. I think there's a, a couple of things and it and it plays um very well on on what uh, David said earlier, which is, you know, the first thing you have to do is is establish the relationship with the patient, but along with establishing the relationship you've got to set expectations. And I think you've got to set the expectations for the patient and you've got to set the expectations for the, the payer and the employer. And I think if you clearly define those at the onset, it's much harder for people to then come back and say um, that the game was changed on them. So I include in my discussion with every preoperative patient, um, and I'm just talking about an operative patient now, this is probably the same if it's operative or non-operative. I include in my discussion with them as well as my notation that goes to the insurance company and or the employer, what the timeline for recovery should look like. So uh, I'll just give you an example as a rotator cuff repair. Um, I define it as six weeks off work. There's no driving while they're in the sling based on the legal liability aspects. At six weeks, they're eligible for sedentary duty, which would involve primarily desktop work with no lifting in the upper extremity. By 10 to 12 weeks, I would anticipate light duty, which is generally defined as 10 pounds and no overhead work. And I would anticipate them to be available for full duty within six to eight months. And then I'll caveat that with, you know, depending on the condition and the severity of the injury, I would expect them to not to require permanency or not require permanency. And in some cases, I'll even say, look, this patient is very unlikely to go back to their normal occupation. And we should start thinking about vocational rehabilitation or other alternative employment options at the end of care now, because that's going to become a reality. So I think setting the expectations up front is important. And then the second tip I would give you is clearly define the roles with the patient. So what, what I always tell patients is my role is to tell, um, tell you and the employer and the insurance company 
what you can and cannot do safely from a medical standpoint. It's not to determine whether your work can accommodate it. It's not to determine whether your boss is, is ill-treating you by asking you to do more than that. It's to tell them what you safely can and can't do. There are a lot of people that are involved in the care of these patients. They often have attorneys and case managers, and those are the people that are generally there to advocate for them when those medical restrictions are not being followed. Now, in some rare cases where clearly there's an abuse in terms of the, the patient clearly being asked to do things that are outside of the restrictions and may put that at harm, I'll make note of that in the record and then use that as a, a justification as to why I'm downgrading the restrictions from what we originally outlined because I don't feel that the workplace is a safe environment and that those restrictions are being followed. So I think if you stay objective that way, you set expectations, you define your role within the care team, um, it generally goes pretty smoothly. Dr. Ring, one of the recurring elements of workers' compensation cases is this idea of secondary gain, specifically as the patient is being paid not to work. Now, generally, they're paid less than they would be to work. And my opinion is the vast majority of patients want to return to work as financially they are worse off without it. But this is frequently talked about among surgeons that the patient does not want to return to work because they're being paid not to work. Dr. Ring, tell us how you get into that in your patient encounters. Yeah, you know, it's it, we. I think about the evidence has drawn me to mental and social health and how important they are to to overall health and to physical health. And as I talk with my orthopedic colleagues, and it, it's not easy. It hasn't been easy to have those discussions with patients or with colleagues. But the one that was always easy, we all, you know, when I was a resident medical student, all the way, it, we could always talk about secondary gain. Uh, we could talk about the attention you get from being sick. You could talk about winning a lawsuit. You could talk about uh, being able to get paid and not work. But any of us who do work with workers more than a little bit know that they don't they don't want sixty percent or seventy percent of their salary. They don't want to not be able to work overtime. It's killing them. They they can't make their mortgage. Uh, they. They they're not they're not looking for a handout. It's they truly are scared. They truly feel um, un, um, unsafe to return to the work, and it's usually incorrect. It's a misconception, and these are the same kind of misconceptions that people deal with under any sort of insurance or any any circumstance. It's the story or it's the interpretation uh, the human mind makes of symptoms, particularly pain. So one of the things I was thinking as I was listening to Nick talk, which I, I really enjoy what he's saying, and, and um, clearly he knows a lot about this. I'm learning more every day. Uh, the, the the thing the thing you want to do. The, so we're asked as as specialists to give uh, some expert advice. It's like we're basically serving a role in society, and restrictions, as he described, that's what. A person is at risk if they do. Okay, so if they if the fracture's not healed, or I just sewed the uh, rotator cuff back in place, they should not be doing forceful things that can pull that apart, rip that apart. So that's restrictions, and mostly we as surgeons are talking about restrictions. Capacity is, let's say somebody's got uh, a large rotator cuff defect and cannot raise their arm above a certain level, um, then they then they cannot reach up to the top parts of the machine that they use. So they have a limited capacity to do that work. And then activity intolerance is when everybody is when the sentence starts, I can't X. And activity intolerance is again, mostly due to uh, misconceptions, distress, 
fear of painful movement. And I think if we just realize that we're supposed to talk about restrictions and maybe capacity, and if we do, as he said, and one of the things we've done in Texas and Austin is not just be very clear in our notes, but actually meet every month with each insurance company and go through each person we're, we're treating. And and because they can understand the value of getting somebody back to work, getting staying out of work is really bad for you. There's evidence that staying out of work uh, is you're going to die earlier. Um, it's just bad for you in so many ways. So they know that they know that uh, it runs up big bills and they want to get people back to work. So if you can powwow with them, indicate what the restrictions are, capacity, activity, and tolerance. We, you can come up with a plan together that usually helps the, the the person you're treating. Yeah, I think that's a really important statement, David. There's no question that the clock is ticking from day one, and the day longer one. the patient stays, the longer the patient stays out, regardless of the progress of their medical condition, the less likely it is that they're going to go back to work. That's just the time factor. It has nothing to do with the condition or the treatment. And um, and so I do think it's really important that when um, possible that we try to get these patients back actively engaged into the workplace environment. Uh, because once you get past a year or 18 months, regardless of what's going on or what you do, it's, it's really difficult to get them to get them back to work again. And, and I think it has much more to do. Uh, it, it's, it's much deeper than a simple secondary gain that I'm getting paid to not work. It, it has to do with all of the psychological factors, the learned helplessness that occurs not only from work injuries, but from anything that really takes you out of, of what defines you as a person um, uh, starts to set in. And so I, I think that's an important uh, point that David made. Dr. Verma, another challenging aspect of work comp cases is your role as the surgeon in determining MMI or maximal, maximum medical improvement. And you were alluding to this a little bit before in terms of setting a timeline, you know, when you first meet the patient, understand the injury and talk about what's going to happen. Tell us how you have gone about determining when MMI should be, given the heterogeneity of patients that you see, pathologies and procedures that you encounter. How do you, how do you determine this? Are there guidelines that our listeners can rely on to determine what MMI is for a you know, given patient, given procedure, given injury? Um, it's a great question, Rachel. And I think um, there are basic guidelines. And I think they're not unlike the guidelines that we would think about in terms of talking to a patient. Uh, who does not have a work-related injury, about when we could expect certain milestones to occur, such as returning to a high level of, um, of uh, or a high-demand job or returning to a, a high-demand sport. I think it's important that people understand that the definition of the maximum medical improvement is not the patient is cured or they're made whole, so to speak. The definition is the point at which there is no anticipated continued improvement uh, with interventional care. It doesn't mean that the patient may not need repeat injections for management of their arthritis. It doesn't mean that they might not have progression of their underlying degenerative condition over time. It just means that we're at a static point in treatment where future interventional treatment, whether that's therapy, um, surgery, et cetera, is unlikely to make a meaningful change in his condition. And so I think you use all of the things that we use in decision-making for, for other patients, uh, not unlike an athlete, at, at which point you tell them, look, it's either safe for you to return or maybe you're not going to get back to this sport at the level that you were at before. You use the type of procedure that you performed, your knowledge and expectation of how those how patients typically do in response to that procedure, 
any confounding variables that may exist, uh, such as underlying arthritis in a patient with uh, rotator cuff pathology that may change the outcome. Uh, you look at their historic response to treatment. Uh, you know, I, I've done an injection twice. It gave them three weeks of relief. That's unlikely to solve it. They've been in therapy for the last 10 weeks. I look at their notes objectively, and uh, they've made uh, uh, little to no appreciable or clinically meaningful gain in strength or range of motion. Um, and you look at the diagnostics and, and your examination findings that say, I don't really have much else to offer this patient from an interventional standpoint. And so I think when you put all of that information together, you come up with some reasonable data about uh, a patient reaching MMI. In terms of when that may occur, you know, this, this was something we looked at in the non-work comp population to see when, when do patients stop getting better after the procedures that we do. And I'm talking about midterm recovery. I'm not talking about, you know, I tore my rotator cuff, I got better, and then I've got a re-tear 10 years later. I'm just talking about from the episode of care of the initial rotator cuff, when do people stop getting better? And, you know, this came up in our minds because uh, for publication purposes, journals always had this convention that, well, we need two-year follow-up. We need two-year follow-up. And the question that I always ask, well, what, what is, why is it two years? Is that something that we made up? It, it, it could be six months for some cases. It could be five years for other cases. And when you look across many of the typical sports medicine and uh, shoulder procedures that we typically do, the number seems to range between six months to a year at which a patient is unlikely to see statistical improvements over time on patient reported outcomes. So I think when you use that, the vast majority of these patients are going to be at MMI within six months to a year, six months. For things like, you know, distal clavicle resections and acromioplasties, maybe even a little bit sooner, and then a year for more uh, significant interventions like rotator cuff repairs or significant labral surgery replacements, et cetera. Now, speaking of maximum medical improvement, I think another challenging aspect of a workers' compensation case is that when the patient reaches that point, but is not able to re return to work. David, tell us your strategy in that situation. How do you talk to that patient? What actions do you take in that case? Yeah, and that gets to what I was talking about with uh, restrictions, capacity, and activity and tolerance. Um, I feel like you're ask, asking about the situation in which the bone is healed, the motion is there, the strength is there, and the person says, I, I don't think I can do that job. So that's the activity and tolerance is, is, is going to be more in the psychosocial realm, and you, you, you just can stick to the to the restrictions and the and the facts about the pathology. One one comment to say about you know uh, we talked about what's covered under work claim and in in Illinois it's uh, any any kind of symptom that comes from work. In Texas it actually in a state by state is all different, but in in Texas it has to be a new pathology, which is a, a nice standard. It's a very different than what I was used to in Massachusetts, but it has to be a new pathology. And then maximum medical improvement is just exactly as Nick defined, but there's also a secondary time limit. So if you get out to 144 days, no matter what's going on, you hit maximum medical improvement. So back to your question, if, if, you, if you have somebody and you've done as Nick has done, like from day one, you've said, oh, here's what's going on. Here's how you're going to get back to work. From the moment you meet them, it's all mapped out. And they start to get off track and you start to listen and uh, explore what it is that makes them ambivalent about the plan that you discussed uh, early on. And a lot of times you'll find that there are misconceptions at the root of it. Uh, if I do this, it hurts. And when I have pain, I'm causing harm. That's a fundamental uh, misperception and uh, mistake in interpreting symptoms and, and disease. 
there may be another one where um, I I can only do this job if I have no pain or I need to be 100% to return. Um, those are common beliefs that are uh, not true. And we know they're not true because we treat many, many people who prove otherwise. Uh, and, and so I don't, the thing you have to be careful is you can't try to convince them this is the right way to look at it and that's not. You've got to listen and validate the way they're thinking about things and then see if you can get them ambivalent about that way of thinking. We're getting into communication strategies like motivational interviewing where you kind of explore like, okay, this is the way it is now. What would it look like if it was a different way? Or uh, um, you're hoping it'll turn out like this, but I, I think you're worrying like that, like sort of a complex reflection to get them talking. And if you, and then if you then map out, uh, you need some communication strategies to uh, bail you out here. So um, here's one. So you, you 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 can't reasonably sign that work form and say uh, you you shouldn't work, and you you don't want to suffer the moral injury and uh, loss of integrity that comes with that. I hope you don't. Because it's 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 not it's not good for you. <laughs> so you want to do the right thing, and what what I do is I say, okay, the the workers' comp insurer is gonna they're gonna let us do this for a little while, and and you know maybe maybe for a month, maybe for two months, but eventually they're gonna call us on it. So I think a better strategy would be for you and I to come up with a plan now that your bones healed and now that you're. Uh, ready. Uh, there, there's no more restrictions. So what's your, what's the plan for getting you back to work and then give them the agency. And if it's anything short of something reasonable, then bargain it into, I mean, at least a compromise that isn't six more months out of work would, would be, you know, something like one or two uh, where you think they could go back right away is fine. Uh, just to tag onto that, the first thing I do is obviously make my own assessment about whether it's safe and the patient is able. And I think David gave some great definitions there, but you know, there obviously are some cases where where you recognize based on the pathology that it's probably unrealistic for the patient to go back and do their jobs. And then there are a variety of different methods, either based on your own expertise or things like functional capacity evaluations that we use. I think the question was more about the patient that should be able to go back to work, but uh, feels that they're not capable. The other strategy that I've used in that situation is a trial of full duty, because I think to David's point, many of these patients feel like a, they're going to hurt themselves, or B, pain equates with um, with pathology, or C, that if they are released and they go back to work, they're kind of on their own, and they're screwed if something happens. So I think one of the uh, tips that I try to use is, well, I think you can do it. I think that it's safe for you to do it. Some pain is normal as you come back from these types of injuries. And frankly, uh, you know, given your age or given the pathology, some minor discomfort is to be expected, and we can manage it using X, Y, and Z. But I think the best option is let's try it and see how you do. And we'll see you back after that so that we can make sure that you're not having trouble with it before we actually release you from our care. And I think oftentimes just that ability to give them some uh, fallback options that if they are struggling or they are having a problem or they aren't able to do it, that we can reassess and, and go in an alternate direction. I think that lack of finality sometimes will coax them into, uh, into giving it a try at least. I think those are both great strategies, you know, involving the patient with their care and kind of saying, as Dr. Ring was saying, kind of what, what are we going to do here? What's our plan? Um, and, and having a good time frame, and then, you know, giving them an out as Dr. Verma was saying, so they don't feel like this is it and they're done. I think both great strategies for our listeners. 
Dr. Verma, one of the things I think that can be a little intimidating for um, for surgeons, especially younger surgeons, but even some more experienced surgeons, is the medical legal side of work comp cases. For instance, uh, many times in complex cases, you might be deposed as the surgeon or the clinician involved in the care of the patient. Do you have any tips for our listeners for success in these types of depositions, do's and don'ts and things to watch out for? Uh, it is. There's no question. It's it's a field or a part of uh, orthopedic medicine specifically that we're not trained on, um, that we really have no experience or knowledge of, and that you're thrust into once you suddenly enter clinical practice. So um, the first thing is to just validate that it's very overwhelming and it's very intimidating as you first get into that situation. But I think what, what helps me or what helped me to become more comfortable doing it is to understand that the point of a deposition is to allow you to be the expert in the room, which is what you're, what you're doing. Nobody's asking you to opine on things that are outside of your area of expertise. And when it comes to the questions that are being asked in regards to the injury and the pathology and the expected outcome and, and what, what are, what's best for the patient, you're the expert in the room with the, with the most knowledge. So um, I think that if you, if you understand that premise going in and if you use the same strategies that I outlined earlier about being objective, um, laying out your opinions in a, a thoughtful and concise manner. Um, and I think the, the biggest one is you just want to try to avoid editorializing. You want to stick to the data, stick to the, um, the, the facts, so to speak, as close as, as you can come, and then offer your opinions that you feel comfortable with uh, on, uh, on the basis of your training, your education, your experience, your knowledge, all of the things that, that have got us to the point that we are today. And I think where we really sometimes get unwound is the fact that uh, there's a lot of pressure from uh, third-party entities, whether it's attorneys or other um, uh, insurance companies, et cetera. There can be pressure in terms of, am I going to be able to treat their patients anymore? There's uh, financial remuneration that happens with depositions, et cetera. Um, and, and I think it's just like everything else we do. If you, if you remain objective and you stick to the principles that, that made you successful as a physician, you'll keep yourself out of trouble. Both of you provided just such excellent advice in this podcast for listeners who might want to take workers' comp. Certainly, you could listen to all this and think, maybe I just don't want to take workers' compensation insurance. I wanted to ask both of you why you do take this and what benefits you think it has had for your practice. So, Dr. Verma, why is it that you take workers' compensation in your practice, and what benefits do you think it's had in terms of caring for these patients? Um, you know, I, I actually find them to be sometimes some of my most rewarding patients because, as David pointed out earlier, many of them are lost in a system where the care they get is really suboptimal. And I think this is, uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the, the dirty little secrets of the work comp world is that many of the things that we're talking about could simply be avoided by appropriate early uh, care, let's call it early diagnosis, early intervention with appropriate care, and uh, appropriately setting the expectations from day one. So, you know, some of the hardest cases that I see to get involved in are, are nine months or 12 months. In Illinois, um, uh, you know, I, I feel bad now that knowing that Texas, you can get out of it at 144 days. In Illinois, it goes on for years. And when you come into these cases two years down the line, you know, a, a shoulder has become a neck and a neck has become a shoulder. And you look back at the documentation and there's just no way to make heads or tails out of what was actually the condition that the patient initially presented for. And if you just went back to those early days and did, did a, a thoughtful history, a careful and concise examination um, and, and came up with a strategic plan with a diagnosis other than sprain strain, which some of these patients go on uh, 
getting treated for sprain strains for nine months or 12 months. Uh, so I, I think if you can come in, establish a diagnosis, provide a patient with a dedicated treatment plan, and deliver the type of care that we as patients would expect or, or, or want to have, you know, when you can flip some of these cases and actually get these patients better and give them their life back, it's so much more than treating their medical condition. If you get them healthy and back to work, you're really giving them their life back. Um, and, and I think that can be a very, very rewarding experience. I just, I totally agree with that. I'm going to, I'm going to, instead of repeating it, I'm going to make it a little bit broader and generalize it. Um, when there's a lot of talk about, I, I mentioned moral injury, uh, loss of joy in practice or burnout. There's, you know, just the, those bad days, those difficult spots. And I think it's true of any, any profession or any aspect of life, but what the way I, the, my best mental health tip is I try to make all my pain points opportunities. So if I find that uh, workers' compensation is, I see a lot of problems there and um, patients aren't getting good care and they seem to be experiencing a lot of injustices and they seem to, some of their misconceptions are reinforced, some of their maladaptive uh, coping strategies for their despair and worry are are being reinforced and those aspects of their illness are not being treated. If I see that, I don't want to just like avoid it. I want to get in there and change it. And if I see uh, people having more pain and more uh, in, 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 incapability than I would expect for a given disease, and that is something that's always made me uncomfortable. You, know, you walk in the room and within 10 seconds, you have a sense of sort of how straightforward it's going to be. And when, when it's not going to be straightforward, you feel that, that pit in your stomach. Uh, I, I think you ought to lean into that and take that pain point and figure out how to, how to make that work for you. And I've spent my career trying to do that, basically understanding that there are verbal and nonverbal signs of misconceptions, psychological distress and stress. And that those are part of the patient's illness, and not resent it when they when they seem to be dismissive of a a, a reassuring MRI or um, not respond to treatment in the way that I I hoped, and really try to figure out how to manage those along with the pathophysiology, and in fact sometimes prioritize it certainly before discretionary surgery, and then you find all of a sudden you enjoy your patients more, you enjoy. Uh, the relationships you have with your patients, you enjoy your practice more, and you find yourself feeling like you're doing things that are futile and useless uh, less and less often. So I'd take all your pain points and make them work them into opportunities. Peter, the last uh, the last tidbit I'd give you is sometimes the hardest thing for us to do as physicians is to say, I don't know or I don't have a solution for you. But but sometimes that's really what the patient needs to hear is that um, is that there may not be a medical explanation for their condition, or we may need to consider other reasons for why they're having pain, or there may be some pain that we just can't solve. Uh, you know, some of the hardest conversations are sometimes early arthritis in patients with obesity, where really the only solution that's going to work is to is to work with them to find a, a you know a weight loss program that unloads their joints. So I think that's another tip that I've learned over time is that. Don't be afraid to say, like, I don't have a solution or, or here's the, the only solution that's going to work, even if they don't want to hear it. Um, or to say, in some cases, I don't know, and, but I'm going to hear some options for ways that we can find out a potential solution to your problem. 
Um, and that's where you call on partners or colleagues or other people that you know and trust um, to help you in difficult situations because there are times where we just we just don't have a solution necessarily. Well, I want to take this opportunity to thank both Dr. Ring and Dr. Verma for spending so much time with us. And I think, you know, this is one of those topics that I, it was by listener request and we invite all of our listeners to send us topic ideas and desires. Um, and we're, we're so grateful to both of you for joining us. This is such an important topic, whether work comp is a big part or small part of your practice, it's important to know how to address these patients and understand their concerns. And I think the perspective we get as residents and fellows is very different from when you're actually the treating surgeon. And you guys both offered such incredible perspective um, with a lot of experience behind that. So thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate the time that you took. My pleasure. Thank, yeah, thanks for having us. It was really fun, and I learned a lot as well. And on that note, that's really all the time we have for this podcast. We want to thank again our guests for joining us. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.